Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Byteclear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Byteclear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. King Charles prepares to confront colonialism. An unguarded coronation comment about Prince Harry is revealed and Charles faces a new awkward cash scandal. I'm Jack Royston, Newsweek's chief royal correspondent, and this is Newsweek's Royal Report. Hello listeners and welcome to the show. King Charles is preparing to tackle the issue that wrecked a tour of the Caribbean by Prince William and Kate Middleton that is driving support for removing him as king in multiple countries around the world and is a factor at play in young Britons turning against the monarchy. That issue, of course, is Britain's colonial past. So specifically, the king will imminently touch down in Kenya. Uh, Kenya is marking the 60th anniversary of its independence from the British Empire in 1963. And it's also the country where Queen Elizabeth II and Prince Philip were on holiday when the Queen discovered for the first time that her father, George VI, had died and that she was Queen in 1952. So why are these events connected? Well, months after the Queen left, the British declared a crisis in Kenya. This was a major milestone in the history of something called the Mau Mau Rebellion. Now, outside of Britain uh, and outside of Kenya, that phrase may be less familiar, but Uh, It's a very familiar phrase in Britain for reasons that I will get into in a little bit, but it's basically a very dark day in the history of the British Empire. At least 11,000 Kenyan rebels were killed during the conflict, including 1,000 convicts who were hanged by the British administration. And some experts actually think the true figure could be as high as 25,000 people. Um, The Kenya Human Rights Commission, in fact, argues that 90,000 Kenyans were either executed, tortured or maimed. Around 100,000 were detained without trial for between three and seven years. And soldiers led by the British tortured detainees and there were allegations of sexual assault, malnutrition and beating. So this is nasty, nasty stuff. Um, We're expecting King Charles to actually address some of these issues head on in a speech early in his visit to Kenya at state banquet. So I think that's probably the right approach from his on his part. You know, you don't want to kind of be mealy mouthed or run away from these issues. If you're going to go to a country like Kenya, when it's marking the 60th anniversary of independence from Britain, you have to go and address the issues as quickly as possible and not look like you're running away from them. Um, But this is an interesting new chapter, I think, in the efforts the royals are currently making to try to address the problems that they have with race, slavery and colonialism. So the background here covers everything from Meghan's explosive Oprah Winfrey interview on the one hand to William Kate's disaster tour of the Caribbean in 2022 to the backlash against the monarchy among young Britons of the kind of Gen Z generation. Um, So this is it's not actually the king. 
King's uh, first effort to address these broad issues, and some past instalments have been more successful than others. Uh, I think what's interesting when you put it all together, though, is that the royals do seem to be edging closer and closer towards full acknowledgement of the crimes of the past. I don't want to kind of suggest that they're definitely going to arrive at full acknowledgement, but that seems to be the direction of travel. They are still a long way off from what critics have asked them for, though. Um, So I want to talk a little bit about why I think Charles has chosen Kenya and what separates this from other past interventions and what it would actually take for the royals to start looking at the good guys on the subject of race. Because I think for a lot of people in Britain and internationally, and I actually think a lot of you know young Americans as well, I still don't really think that the royals are anywhere near looking like the good guys on this subject. So... First of all, there was a tour of Ghana that King Charles went on back in 2018, and there he visited a place called Christiansborg Castle, which was a uh, trading, a slave trading fort that the Danish used, so not the British, but the Danish. And he acknowledged the appalling atrocity of the slave trade and the unimaginable suffering it caused, saying that it left an indelible stain on the history of our world. And that was framed as being a crime of European nations, including Britain. Um, So that was an important step because it started the ball rolling uh, in terms of royals talking about the subject, but obviously calls persist for him to go further, and specifically a lot of those calls are focusing on an apology and on some form of reparations. So that's really tricky for Charles because it conflicts with British foreign policy and the current UK Prime Minister Rishi Sunak is personally on record saying he's not in favour of an apology. He said recently, trying to unpick our history is not the right way forward. So far, the king has expressed his sorrow, but not said sorry. So in other words, he has kind of semantically gone as far as it's humanly possible to go without actually contradicting the British government's position by saying the word sorry. However, talking about the Mau Mau Rebellion will give him an opportunity, I think, to break new ground and go kind of even further than the royals have done before. Um, He will potentially be able to talk about a specific atrocity and specific things that happened in Kenya, um, rather than, you know, most of the kind of royal statements in the past have dealt with generalities and been very kind of like broad brush and not got into specifics. Um, no doubt that, you know, if he does, assuming that he does, and I think he probably will, this will no doubt be welcomed in Kenya, and in- including the fact that um, he has taken the time to prioritise this issue and to fly out there after becoming king. The other countries he's visited, Germany and France, have both been in, Brit- in uh, Europe, rather. Uh, there is a very clear aspect to UK foreign policy there. Britain wants to warm up France and Germany as two of our most important European allies, and this is the first time that he has gone further afield on a state visit. Um, The thing is, though, is that this isn't just about Kenya. This is not a standalone issue. It intersects with a whole load of other debates and a whole load of other stuff that's going on. And as far as the big picture goes, the response in the Caribbean and in Britain is probably going to be as important as the response in Kenya. So let's look at the Caribbean first. Charles is king, not only in Britain, but in 14 other countries around the world. Those countries known as the Commonwealth realms, which is different to the Commonwealth nations. Very confusing, I know. But there are 15 Commonwealth realms, including Britain. There are about 54 nations of the Commonwealth. But the realms are specifically the places that count Charles as king. 
a number of these nations in the Caribbean have already signed, signaled an intention to hold referenda on whether to ditch the monarchy, basically. Um, the major issue driving this groundswell of anti-monarchy sentiment in these countries is the legacy of colonialism, cause for reparations, and specifically the fact that those calls haven't been met. So anything said about empire by Charles in Kenya could reverberate through those countries and through those debates. Recent polling says six out of the 14 realms would vote to become republics if given the choice. And that includes three nations in the Caribbean. So this is, you know, it's very likely that in the coming years we're going to see actual real votes taking place, real referenda taking place in countries in the Caribbean, which could, in a very real way, lead to Charles being removed as head of state in a bunch of countries around the world. Um, But Charles himself is yet to visit a single one of these countries since becoming king. He did shortly before, um, but since succession, he hasn't visited any one of them. And people start, are starting to notice in Australia, for example, there have been segments on major news channels where people are basically asking where Charles has gone. You know, why hasn't he arrived? Why hasn't he come to visit us? He's supposed to be our king. And so much so, in fact, that it's also starting to seep into some of the commentary and debate in Britain. We've had royal commentators in Britain saying, including to you know interviews that I've done with prominent royal correspondents in Britain, saying Charles needs to get out there and he needs to start visiting some of these countries. So why then is he visiting Kenya uh, to have a conversation about colonialism and not one of the Caribbean nations that rem- might remove him as king? Well... Interestingly, 10 years ago, the British government paid out compensation and legal costs totaling the equivalent of around $25 million to around 5,000 Kenyans who survived the British camps. Crucially, ministers didn't accept liability, though, and the Foreign Secretary at the time was clear that he did not consider this case to set a legal precedent that would allow other people in future to sue the British government over the misdeeds of the British Empire. That Foreign Secretary, for what it's worth, was William Haig. And what's William Haig up to today? Well, for what it's worth, he works for Prince William as chairman of the Royal Foundation. But what does this all mean? Well, what it means effectively is that Charles has a safe zone in which he can operate because it's well-established principle in Britain that the Mau Mau were brutally mistreated when they rose up against British rule. And it's not particularly controversial to suggest the empire was at fault. As I said at the beginning... The Mau Mau Rebellion is a really famous chapter in the history of the British Empire. It's much more well known about than some of the other misdeeds of of the colonial era, some of the other crimes of the colonial era. So, and the British government is on record condemning it and acknowledging how terrible it was. So Charles can go to Kenya and he can make much stronger statements than he would be able to make in a country like Jamaica, where the Foreign Office has given up so much less ground. And this is a tactic that we've seen the royals use before. Prince William went to Jamaica, and he was. This is in 2022. It was supposed to be a celebration of the Queen's Platinum Jubilee, and he was hit by protests calling for slavery reparations. It looked like him and Kate had been caught completely off guard. They went there, like kind of looking like they were going on holiday. You know, they were pictured swimming with sharks and stuff like that, and uh, they just weren't prepared for the fact that the conversation happening on the ground was going to be about slavery and colonialism. So, seemingly caught off guard, Prince William gave a speech in which he echoed the, well, then it was Prince Charles's past comments condemning slavery. So in other words, he took refuge in ground that had already been covered previously by his father. And again, Prince William, some of his strongest comments he's made on race have been in relation to the Windrush scandal when the British government attempted to deport back to the Caribbean people who had lived in Britain for decades since the 1950s. So after, you know, obviously Britain 
decimated during the Second World War. A huge amount of rebuilding needed to be done, but a lot of men had died during the war. There were huge gaps in the labour market, and so people from the Caribbean were actively invited to come to Britain to bolster those shortages in labour. And um, then recently, over the last kind of 10 years, uh, the British Home Office started actually trying to deport some of those people because it had been so long that they didn't have the kind of modern paperwork that somebody who had just arrived in Britain today and been given indefinite leave to remain today would have. It was a massive, massive and very messy political scandal. So in some ways, William's comments seemed bold. They seemed to be bordering on political, really. But he was also operating on safe ground because the British government had itself already condemned the Windrush scandal. Home Secretary Priti Patel in 2020 said the, the Windrush scandal is an ugly stain on the face of our country and on the Home Office. So... In other words, William could go much further than a royal family member would normally be able to go because he was able to operate within the zone, within the territory that had already been occupied by the British government in condemning itself. So this is also the territory where Charles can perhaps go further than he has gone before in acknowledging the specific crimes of the British Empire precisely because Britain has already acknowledged those crimes and paid compensation out in court. So where the British government has already gone and admit fault, the royal family can follow. Um, But will it work? You know, will this actually address the pressure the royals have been under in relation to racism, slavery and colonialism? Well... Obviously, for the younger generation in Britain, the Meghan and Harry issue still looms large. And uh, for some, I think it's probably going to be actually quite a long time before that fully recedes. So there's that. But then on the other hand, there's another problem too, which is that the royals are under pressure not only to acknowledge Britain's role in the slave trade, but also specifically the royal family's role, as in past monarchs. So no, in in short, for me, this won't by itself change the perception that young people have that the royals are out of touch on slavery and colonialism. But that doesn't mean it's a bad idea. It's a good idea and it's a good thing to do. Um, And if the royals keep making incremental process inch by inch by inch by inch over time, it is entirely possible that they will eventually arrive at a much more kind of dramatic place where they please a lot more people. It kind of ironically, it's sort of a bit like capturing territory. So every time they go a little bit further without sparking the ire of the right wing press or, you know, traditionalist historians who uh, who've, you, you know, still want to kind of look back with some nostalgia on the era when Britain ruled the waves. Every time they do this without provoking that section of British society, they create a precedent and establish a new kind of foothold from which they can in a month or perhaps two months, three months, half a year, uh, they can then take a step further. They can, they can then push the boundaries back a little more. One thing that I think it's important to kind of keep in mind is that Harry and Meghan were actually already very successful at showing communities of colour in in Britain and young people that they were on the same page and that they were, you know, the good guys and on the right side of history in relation to race. And they did that by simply asking community leaders what was wanted and expected from them 
and then simply delivering it. You know, it's a simple and effective formula. And in fact, it's a formula that you know, is in some ways as old as time when it comes to the royals, but only on non-controversial issues. So this is what the royals do on standard stuff, you know, like your average charity fair. They go and they speak to charities. They consider those charities they work with charities that they're patrons of to be experts in their fields so they simply ask those charities what should i say what issue should i focus on what do you consider to be the most important aspects of this issue the charities then tell them and the royals simply focus on those areas it's very simple and very effective but Harry and Meghan triggered a massive backlash from the likes of the Daily Mail and other uh, kind of establishment uh, voices in Britain. So Charles and William, no doubt, obviously don't want to do that. So the question is, if you don't spark the backlash, do you get the credit? You know, is part of the reason why Harry and Meghan built up so much credit with young people and so much uh, credit with people of colour, the fact that they took the backlash, the fact that they suffered the angst of the Daily Mail? Is that the reason they were viewed so positively? If you remove the kind of controversy and the backlash, first of all, do you get the reach? You know, do people see it? Will people read the stories about Charles's comments? Oh, well, they just turn the page and read something else. Um, that is a big problem. You know, that's a big problem for Charles. It's kind of been a problem for Charles for a long time, which is that the projects that he does do and the things that he does say sometimes sail under the radar because people are just less interested in him than they are in William and Kate and Harry and Meghan. So that's his first challenge. And then the second challenge is, will people actually change their minds or will people see it as political strategy? Will people feel that this is authentic? Will they feel this is the true, real Charles? Now, all of that, I think, honestly, we're just going to have to wait and see what he says and then judge it on its merit when it happens. But it is, of course, completely possible that if he says the wrong thing or he handles it badly, that he will trigger a backlash of the kind that William and Kate triggered when they visited the Caribbean in 2022. Uh, I do think that there, you know, there probably, my gut instinct is, there probably won't be a huge backlash against them on the ground in Kenya. Um, there was a segment on a Kenyan TV show recently where somebody was kind of invoking Harry and Meghan's experiences and saying that, you know, what they really wanted was to see some resolution from Charles on the treatment of Harry and Meghan. It's not impossible that that will be a factor when they visit Kenya. But if you look uh, shortly after William and Kate went to uh, Belize, Jamaica uh, and the uh, Bahamas and got ambushed, Charles actually also went to Canada and he approached the tour of Canada so differently to the way that William and Kate approached the Caribbean. And what he did was the minute he touched down, one of the very first things he did was he gave a big speech in which he addressed issues that were pertinent to Canada's indigenous population and spoke about how important those communities were. And he basically kind of tackled the issues head on. So that tour went a lot better for Charles than William and Kate's tour of the Caribbean went for them. And he didn't get the kind of ambush that William and Kate got. So he is clearly looks like he's set up to take the same approach in Kenya. And it may well be, I would say the smart money would be that he's probably going to get the same response in Kenya to the response he got in Canada and isn't going to get the kind of ambush that William and Kate got in Jamaica. 
on that note, I'm going to take a quick break. But before I do, don't forget to rate and review The Royal Report on Spotify or Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your favourite shows. When I'm back, a rather bold comment made about Prince Harry in front of the First Lady. You can host the best backyard barbecue. When you find a professional on Angie to make your backyard the best around. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Inside to outside. Repairs to renovations. Get started on the Angie app or visit Angie.com today. You can do this when you Angie that. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center. Thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Hi everyone and welcome back to the show. The coronation in May was for guests and dignitaries a time to celebrate the monarchy and all things royal and naturally many of those gathered will have likely taken the royal side in the dispute between Prince Harry and Meghan Markle. So it came to be that John Kerry, the United States Special Presidential Envoy for Climate, accompanied by the First Lady Jill Biden, did the rounds talking to guests. Nothing unusual in that, of course. Among those guests was Lady Anne Glen Connor, who said Kerry was asked, what do you think in America about Harry and Meghan? This, during the Barnes Book Festival, she came out and she basically told this whole story, gave this whole anecdote, and here is what she said happened. I feel very sad for Harry because at the King's coronation, I happened to sit next to somebody called John Kerry, who ran for president. He wanted to be president. <laughs> Got to pause there for a moment because that's slightly embarrassing for John Kerry. Somebody called John Kerry who ran for president. But there we go. I'll, I'll, I'll carry on. And he came over with Mrs. Biden because he is into green things. And we were sitting with the King's friends. And I said to him, what do you think in America about Harry and Meghan? And he just said, we all feel very, very sorry for Harry. So I think I can just leave it at that. Now, this can be interpreted in a number of ways. Uh, the predominant way it's gone down publicly it seems to be that Kerry was taking a swipe at Meghan, perhaps knowing who his audience was. You know, like this was the king's friends, it was the coronation, these people were all royalists, and he was asked about Harry and Meghan and said, feel very sorry for Harry because of the position perhaps that Meghan's put him in, I think was the feeling. So the State Department have rejected that notion, and they their statement read... Any implication that Secretary Kerry was commentating on the marriage would be wrong. Secretary Kerry does not remember being asked that question, but as a father in the public eye himself, he has nothing but empathy for people working through a family matter who all deserve privacy and compassion. It is, of course, just as possible 
that Kerry singled out Harry because Harry was there at Westminster Abbey for the coronation ceremony. Um, and then, you know, obviously Harry, you might remember, he kind of jumped on a plane home um, and like before the day's events had even ended. So, you know, he kind of walked out of the Abbey at the end of the actual ceremony, got straight in a car and was r- rushed off to Heathrow Airport and off he went back to America. So this was later in the day. Um, and perhaps, you know, they they all knew this had happened and Harry was the talk of the talk of the day. Um and also, Kerry might have been talking more generally about how tragic it is that royal relations have got so bad. Um, this is kind of a point that a lot of people say to me all the time, is that it's just so sad that Harry and William have fallen out like this. Um, but whatever he meant, whether it was the kind of, you know, the mainstream interpretation that it was a bit of a kind of jokey swipe at Meghan, or whether it was something more... Um, more banal uh, one thing i would say is that it is just in general not a great idea to presume to speak for a whole nation unless you really are very sure that there's a consensus behind your perspective so if it really is the case that you know like 70 80 90 percent of americans all agree about something then fine speak for america um, but people hate politicians and public figures claiming to speak for them and then just saying stuff that they don't agree with it causes people to like shout at the television and talk for an excessive amount of time to friends who have only a passing knowledge of the subject um so you know just don't don't do that like if kerry had said oh well you know i can't speak for the rest of america but I feel blah, 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 blah. I think it would probably have been a little bit less controversial, but to suggest that all Americans feel the same way was probably a bit of a misstep on his part. So that's point one. Just never give a single impression of the one thing a nation of more than 300 million people is supposed to think. Secondly, though... This is perhaps the biggest bit. Don't say it all in front of Jill Biden, because that puts her in a very difficult position. Do people care what John Kerry thinks? Well, yeah, maybe a bit. Um, But I'll tell you what, nowhere near as much as they care what Jill Biden thinks. But if you make comments as a representative of the president in front of the first lady, there's a very real chance people are going to take your opinions as her opinions uh, because she, unless she kind of like actively comes forward and disagrees, which is putting her in a very difficult position. So, you know, she's not going to want to do that to you. She's not going to want to do that awkwardly in front of all these people. But then if she doesn't come forward and disagree, there's a risk that people take her opinions as the president's opinions. And then that's when you kind of have a bit of a full-blown diplomatic crisis on your hands. Uh, because obviously the president would be, it would seek to be neutral in a, well, probably actually, even in a kind of fairly major British political scandal, he'd probably seek to be neutral and keep out of it because it's just kind of not uh, the place of one country to get involved in another country's domestic political situation. But when you make it a family crisis, doubly so. So I think actually, you know, the Kerry and the Biden administration are a little bit lucky on this one that it didn't turn out worse. Um, I think Kerry's remarks were just about vague enough and just about bland enough that it wasn't completely 100% clear exactly what he was saying or whether it was a criticism at all, whether it was a searing criticism or a very mild one or what exactly he meant. Um, and he is also kind of just about enough on the periphery of the Biden administration that they all survive intact. Um, But 
Another thing is, you know, obviously, if this had been on camera and Jill had, if Biden had been visible in the frame behind him or next to him, that would be a totally different story. So, um, I think if you're a, if you're an American diplomat of any kind, an advisor, a secretary of state, whatever, in present or in the future, just you know, remember that the people you speak to at these kind of functions will potentially go on and just blab about it all the next time that they have a microphone in front of them. And on that note, I'm going to take one more quick break. But before I do, a reminder to follow me on Twitter. I'm at Jack underscore Royston. You will find all my latest stories for Newsweek. And when I'm back, new embarrassment for the king over leaked comments from a donor. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective, unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. One, two, three, four. Those are numbers, but you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car, use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader. They're really good at numbers. AutoTrader. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to the show. The royals famously meet a very large number of people, but not all of those people go on to donate so much cash that they get asked by palace aides to stop. Um, Australian businessman Anthony Pratt, however, has suggested that that is exactly what happened to him. He was secretly recorded uh, claiming the palace feared he might bring down the monarchy if he continued channeling money directly to King Charles rather than through charities. This was all actually before Charles became king. Now, it's important to stress that there is no suggestion that either Charles or Pratt did anything wrong, but rather Pratt suggested royal aides were concerned about appearances because of the much wider cash for access scandal relating to Charles's charity. Uh, a little bit more on that later. Some people might remember it from past episodes of the Royal Report. Uh, on the tapes, though, these were recorded in mid-2022, we think, uh, so before Charles became king, and they were published in Australia, including by The Age, by the Sydney Morning Herald, and Australia's 60 Minutes. And Pratt said, they're just so close to becoming the king that he doesn't want me to bring down the monarchy. Well, he just doesn't want the appearance of anything. It's legal, but he doesn't want to look like he's... because he just got into trouble for giving someone a knighthood in exchange for money. Now, regular listeners to the show will no doubt recall the cash for honor scandal, but for those who don't, in a nutshell, Charles took on a major conservation project, which was, uh, it was called Dumfries House, and other charities had looked at it, and they deemed it to be financially unviable, but the king wanted to have a go at saving this great big country pile up in Scotland and using it to create jobs in an economically depressed area. Uh, there was only one slight problem, though, which is that the plans he had in place for funding this project did not produce the cash he needed, triggering a kind of scramble and rush to get additional funds together. And in that chaos, a man called Michael Fawcett, who was the chief executive of one of Charles's charities called the Prince's Foundation, 
Uh, he is accused of offering a Saudi tycoon help securing a knighthood and a British citizenship in return for donations to the charity. So the police investigated it all. They didn't press any charges and they've closed their investigation now. But the Scottish charities regulator is still looking at the issue. Fawcett himself resigned after an internal investigation found there was some evidence of communication uh, in, a, you know, in the direction of um, help securing knighthood and, uh, and citizenship. So back to Pratt, he, he went on to say, I don't think I'll ever get a knighthood. I don't really want one, to be honest, because it's like everyone's got one. What I'm trying to do is to network with people that can be useful. When he, that is Charles, introduced me to Camilla, he's been very useful. And I thought, well, that's an insult. But then I thought, oh, no, it's better than being irrelevant. My superpower is that I'm rich, so I'm useful to him, right? I see him as an undervalued political stock because he's about to be king. It is just that he's a laughing stock now, but when he's king, they won't be laughing. So, obviously, very strong, outspoken comments there, and hugely embarrassing to Charles. Um, But this is what Buckingham Palace had to say in a statement released to Newsweek and other news outlets. Mr. Pratt and his charitable foundation have been supporting the former Prince of Wales' charities for many years, and as is well documented, he is the founding patron of Prince's Trust Australia. Prince of Trust being one of, one of Charles's biggest charities. It is also a matter of record that Mr. Pratt is one of Australia's foremost philanthropists. He has donated to a wide variety of charitable organisations. Any donations from Mr. Pratt were therefore to support the work of the former Prince of Wales's charitable organisations. So in summary, though, clearly there's no allegation of actual wrongdoing here or any kind of criminal offence or anything like that. But this is hugely, hugely embarrassing to the king. And it really shines a light on the slightly grubby undercurrent that exists, I think, within the world of fundraising, which is that you have all these kind of rich guys going around swinging their checkbooks about the place, pouring you know, undoubtedly much needed dollars, I'm sure, into some very good causes. But often, is it genuinely purely because they want to do good or do they sometimes imagine, whether rightly or wrongly, that they're going to get something in return? Maybe they just imagine it's going to be some political capital, a chance to bathe in royalty's warm glow, perhaps. Or maybe they think that they're going to get something more concrete than that, like they might get new job opportunities out of the fact that they're connected or they're going to be able to springboard off the reputation of the royal family into some kind of, you know, uh, into being viewed as powerful and in diplomatic circles or something like that. Um, But I'd be really interested to know how many of these people who go around swinging their checkbooks in this way and talking, you know, just going back to the exact words he used, he talked about Charles's undervalued political stock. You know, that's a very interesting phrase. That does sound like he thinks that Charles's stock was about to go up because he was about to become king. So he was going to kind of get in on the ground floor, so to speak, and then also be elevated via this donation that he was making to Charles's causes. So if you've got people out there who view the royal family in that way, then, you know, I'd be fascinated to know what all of these people think years after they've given all this money over. Like, are these, do these people think that they got value for money? Do they think that they got what they were buying? 
Like maybe there's a whole load of people out there who thought they'd have knighthoods handed to them on a plate, who thought they'd have doors opening left, right and centre to welcome them into the upper echelons of British society. Like I'd, I'd be really interested to know like what has happened to these people. Like somebody, you know, who's got more time than I do. I don't have loads of time. Maybe someone who's had more time than I do could like chart what happens to people after they give loads of money to all of these royal causes. Do they go on to bigger and better things, or do some of them simply have to disappear with their tails between their legs, licking their wounds because actually they didn't get any anything like the kind of influence and sway and political capital in society that they were expecting? It actually reminded me a little bit of a saga involving David Beckham, who some of his emails, I think, were I think got hacked, and some of his emails were leaked. I seem to remember it might even have been the North Korea Sony uh, hack um, of old, and it, it turns out that he had been doing all of this charity work precisely because he wanted a knighthood, and he was getting increasingly angry and frustrated that they weren't giving him one, and kind of say, writing in these emails, you know, the things to the general effect of what more do I have to do. So, yeah, I mean, I guess on the one hand, you could say that if these people are just parting with loads of their cash to good causes in a way where they otherwise wouldn't, maybe they'd be give it all to lobbying companies or to politicians, then I guess that's a good thing. That's a positive aspect to it. But it comes back to that question, like, if they're not getting something for their money, then why are so many of them doing it? Like, surely the word would have got round by now that it was a waste of time. So it's all fascinating stuff and no doubt a subject that we will revisit again in this podcast at a later date. But for now, that is it for this episode of The Royal Report. Be sure to join me every week when I visit the latest royal headlines, embark on some royal deep dives and riff on all things royal. Until next time, I'm Jack Royston. Thanks for listening, everyone, and a curtsy to you all. Look around. You can find cars like these on AutoTrader. Like that car riding your tail. Or if you're tailgating right now, all those cars doubling as kitchens and living rooms are on AutoTrader too. Are you working out and listening to this ad at the same time? Well, multitasking pro, cars like the ones in the gym parking lot are for sale on AutoTrader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on AutoTrader. Just you wait. AutoTrader.